is Thursday, November 21st, and we're here at the EconView studio and library in Chicago. Our guest is a fellow Chicagoan, best-selling author, Michelle Wooker. Her thought-provoking book, The Gray Rhino, was published in 2016 by St. Martin's Press. Michelle's key insight is that even when we see the future charging at us, we often fail to act. Michelle, welcome to the Hale Report. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we see each other at um, New York Council on Foreign Relations events here and there and everywhere, but we've really haven't had a chance to sit down and talk. And so I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Me too. And after reading your book, I've come up with some questions for you too, which... Softballs, I hope. They're all softballs. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Maybe the one about Xi Jinping might not be, but <laughs> I'll let you, let you handle that. So just about everybody in the world of economics has heard about black swans, especially. Um, And those are highly improbable, yet extremely impactful events, such as the 2008 financial crisis. Can you tell us how you came up with the idea of using a rhino as your metaphor to personify obvious danger and critical danger? Um, I, what I find is I'm just as interested in people's creative process as the end result. So I'm wondering, did you have an aha moment in the shower or how did this come about? There was an aha moment. Um, and the, the, sort of the backstory to it is that I started my career as a financial journalist writing about the restructuring of Brady Bonds. And so I spent way too much time thinking about sovereign credit risk and all that kind of stuff and right. had written about the Argentine crisis in 2001 and an attempt ahead of that to, to come up with a voluntary restructuring that could have turned things around. And of course, they missed that opportunity. Right. And uh, 10 years later, Greece had a similar situation. And uh, I wrote a paper for the World Economic Roundtable, which was a joint project of the World Policy Institute, which I was running at the time, and uh, New America. And it was called Chronicle of a Debt Foretold. A little mm-hmm. bit of a nod to my, my Latin American background. Uh, but basically saying, look at Greece, you can learn from Argentina, similar situation, debt's going up, economy is going down, it's not going to end well, you've got a chance to do something about it. And so this was um, spring of 2011, and it was one of the the earlier public calls for a restructuring of Greek debt. And what was very interesting to me was that when I had written about this attempt to restructure Argentina's debt about nine months before the collapse, uh, I wrote about it in IFR Latin America, which I was running at the time. Um, And a bunch of bankers called me and they said, we think this is what needs to happen, but we can't say it in public or we're going to be fired. Oh. <laughs> and so Greece, 10 years later, I wrote about this and uh, I went on to uh, CNBC Worldwide Exchange, guest hosted and talked about it. And people really embraced them. People were talking about it. And uh, almost a year later, Greece and its creditors down to the wire, sort of 11th hour, came to an agreement and were able to head off even more disaster. And so that's really how the the idea for the book started is that they both saw something big and scary coming at them. One country did something about it and the other one missed its chance and I wanted to know what the difference was. Now, I come from a finance and policy world, um, but I know that most people don't get as excited about geeky sovereign credit issues as I do. And I realized that if I talked about this the way I would in policy world, people would just fall asleep. 
So I wanted to find something that helped people to relate because I knew this was a question that wasn't just about finance. It applies to everything. In fact, I, I get questions about applying it to your personal life. And so I'd been going back and forth, really trying to figure out, you know, how do I tell this story in a way that's that's more accessible? And I was sitting in my office on, on Fifth Avenue talking to one of our advisors at the Institute. And I said, you know, it's big, it's scary, it's, it's coming right at you, it's dangerous. And that's where the horn sort of popped into mm-hmm. my head, you know, the pointing at you and the rhinoceros, the big two-ton thing charging right at you. So that's when the rhino came up. And uh, my uh, advisor was a corporate lawyer. And of course, everyone in New York talked about black swans all the time. So he made sort of a black swan joke saying, oh, you could call it a black rhino. Okay. But I had been to the zoo maybe when I was six years old and saw a rhino. I didn't know anything about rhinos, but I did know there, there was such a thing as a black rhino. But I thought, wasn't there also such a thing as a white rhino? So I had to go to Wikipedia and look this up because I didn't really know. And that's where I learned that black rhinos aren't actually black and white rhinos aren't actually white. They're all gray, which should be... Shades of gray. Shades of gray, but it should be obvious that they are gray, but nobody, nobody calls them gray, which is what they really are. So it seemed to me to be the perfect metaphor for what I'm talking about. And... After the book came out, it's been more interesting. You know, some of my friends, they, they know me well, they know the concept, they know the theory, but they even still have trouble. They keep call, trying to call it a white rhino, oh. which even reinforces the concept even more. Sometimes it's really, really, really hard to recognize the thing that is so incredibly obvious that it should be hard to miss, but it's not. It's, it's definitely not. You know, your writing style is so wonderful. If your goal was to make what you do accessible to other people, the kinds of things that we read, the academic articles that you and I read every day, are so turgid. It was just such a pleasure to read The Gray Rhino. And I don't think I'll forget the color. Thank you. (laughs) So I think it's important to say that. So you really made this decision then to uh, reach a wider audience. Absolutely. You know, I used to say, uh, you know, policy is not just for wonks that uh, everything we do on a certain level has to do with, with policy. Like you turn off a light switch to save electricity, you cut down on the that's electric right. bill. You know, my dad would certainly agree. You know, that's, that's a policy decision that, that has an effect in the real world. And one of the things that I always cared about a lot, both as a journalist and then in think tank management, was making this all accessible because you can have the same people sitting in the same rooms talking to each other about things and you get a real group think phenomenon going Absolutely. on. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it is that policy is about getting people to behave differently. And so instead of having to get people to behave differently because you have a regulation or a government decision or a, a you know edict handed down from above... If you can reach people directly and get them to start doing some things that just make more sense, I mean, that's, it's, it's a lot more efficient way of getting things to happen. Right. And it's, it's very much in keeping with all my training, which had been to you know, keep, keep as light a hand as possible on policy. I mean, I, I look sometimes at some of the, the regulations and the, and the nonsense and the, you know, fill out this form in, in, 
triple triplicate. And it's just ridiculous. I mean, you know, government when it goes bad can be very bad, but there's also times when it makes sense. And so I, I feel that it's so important for people to understand where policy can be helpful and where it could be improved and to try to get away from this debate about, you know, government good, business bad, or, you know, markets good, government bad. It's, it's really a question of who's got the power to do what to make certain things better. And I've always believed that individual citizens have a lot more power to change things for the better than most of us realize. Well, you know, economists um, since 2008 have gotten a bit of a bad reputation. And I think really economists are historians. They're looking at data that's already happened, but they're expected to be fortune tellers and to tell us what's going to happen. And I don't think they're particularly good at that. Um, And so when they don't fulfill that function, um, I was thinking about, um, you know, this idea that even if they could tell us what the future is, what you're saying with the gray rhino is people might not react. And the, the key people might not react to the, the clear and present danger, even if they were able to identify it. Absolutely. There, there are lots of, of reasons why they don't, but there, there are also lots of, of problems with predictions. I mean, first of all, if you make a prediction that something bad's going to happen and you get really, really lucky and the people with the power to do something about it step in to prevent this very bad thing from happening, they're going to the people who predicted the problem were going to get called Cassandras. They're going to say, right. oh, no, this this was never going to happen. And so there's not a good way of giving credit to people who predicted a bad thing and, as a result, policymakers stepped in. And, in fact, if you look historically, people who predict a bad thing and do something to prevent it don't end up very well, like Joan of Arc. Right. <laughs> not Not really what you want <laughs> to happen. The other part of it, though, is... Particularly in the West, we've got such a weird relationship with predictions. We don't always look at the right indicators. Just the, the, the debate the last couple of weeks about, you know, the inverted yield curve supposedly predicting or not recession. predicting recession. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it inverts and then it un, uninverts. And all of a sudden people are saying, oh, there's not going to be any recession. And, and that's, it's, it's not... You know, it's 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 such a complicated psychological thing. You've got manipulated markets, and so the inverted yield curve predicts that people think there's going to be a recession, or it might be that you know they think that there's not going to be quantitative easing, you know, pumping more air into the market bubbles. You just you really don't know. And the other part is that in the West, people want to know on precisely what minute of what hour of what day is the stock market going to go down and by what percentage? And if you don't predict something to that level of detail, or if you do predict something to that level of detail and it doesn't happen, then everybody jumps out of the woodwork and says, nah, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. When that's not really the point of making predictions and looking at the markets right now, at the economy right now, I think it's fairly obvious that things are not going to keep going the direction they are and they're going to start going down and that there are a lot of very obvious dangers out there that we're, that the people with the power to do something about are not necessarily paying the right attention to and people who don't have as much knowledge about 
are being suckered into believing. You give a great example of Y2K. <laughs> and, you know, Y2K, we were also worried about that at the turn of the, of the century. But actually nothing happened. On the other hand, um, you mentioned $400 billion was spent to prevent a problem. But we don't really know what would have happened if that hadn't, if that expenditure hadn't happened. And, and you also said that there's something happening in 2038. What is that that we're facing? It's, 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 it's another sort of, you know, reset. Complicated techly, techie thing. Yeah. Complicated techie thing. Okay. I'll worry about that in maybe 2037. Exactly. (laughs) And then they'll spend another, you know, $400 billion or or whatever at that point. But it's, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I was spending a lot of time in Texas in the late nineties and I had the great, uh, well, misfortune or fortune, depending on whether you're a storyteller or a rational person, <laughs> of <laughs> running into some sort of, uh, you know, millennial Y2K conspiracy theorists mm. who were, uh, who were, I got into an argument with one of them about whether people used cash in New York City. I, I lived in New York City at the time and used cash and uh, he was arguing the other side. <laughs> So, but you know, these these people were predicting that there's going to be you know a horde of foreign mercenaries that were going to uh, you know swarm down on the United States, and they they didn't speak English. So the way that they were going to get to round up people was that there were um, uh, reflective tape Morse code signs on the back of. The, the highway signs to, I mean, this is like, I imagine this was after a few beers. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, <laughs> no. It, was it wasn't even that fun. They were serious. So, you know, predictions are a funny thing or, you know, I went to, I went to high school in, in Waco, Texas. Um, now none of you listening to this are allowed to play two truths and a lie with me anymore. Okay. Um, but I went to high school in a school that in, in, buildings that had been created by the Davidians before they split apart and became the Branch Davidians. And the, there was a giant stone clock in the floor of the library with a handset at one minute to 11 to warn us that the end was nigh. And it was supposed to, the world was supposed to end in 1959. And when it didn't, they rescheduled for two years. And when it still didn't, they all scattered to the winds and became Branch Davidians instead of the original Davidians. Mm-hmm. So I have this, this sort of um, strange relationship with predictions going way back to way before I was even thinking about predictions in their, and their nature and, and our very, very complicated relationship with them. Well, I would, you know, reading too about, and we've just been talking about horrible things that have happened or could have happened, but um, is there the same, does this same concept of the gray rhino and people not paying attention and doing anything, just freezing when, when bad things are about to happen, does that also apply to good things that are going to happen? That people just, they see something, they think, oh, the internet's going to be a really big deal, but they do nothing about it. Is there a book there that people not only don't foresee um, uh, disasters and crises, but they also fail to act on real opportunities? There's, there's definitely something about that. And I'm, I'm working on a new book. It's based on a lot of my experiences uh, with the gray rhino, but looking at the whole concept of risk. And right. I think your question is so closely tied to the, to the way people see risk. Some, some people only see danger. Right. Other people only see opportunity. It's our neurology. 
Yeah. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. partly our personality. It's mm-hmm. our experiences. It's, you know, whether we've eaten spicy food that day or not, <laughs> bizarrely enough. Um, but, you know, thinking about what are some of the ways that we react to a certain situation, it's our, our sort of, you know, risk fingerprint, I right. like to call it, that, you know, the, the all of the factors from our background and personality and neurobiology and mood and environment, how do those color whether you see a risk as something that's more likely to be positive or more likely to be negative. And the second part of that is what do you feel your ability is to respond to it? Mm -hmm. Because a big part of the reason that people don't respond to something is that they, they don't feel they've got the power to deal with it or you look at, say, climate change, and they feel like, I'm just one little person. Is flipping that light switch off going to really make a big difference or not? And people will use that perception of powerlessness, whether it's relative or absolute, as an excuse to not do something. And I think the flip side is true for for positive risks. The, oh, I don't have the skills to do that. I wouldn't possibly know how to do it. And the difference is the people who know how to ask themselves, okay, what does it take to get the knowledge that I need or the resources that I need? And and that process is actually part of the the gray rhino theory and the framework that I've developed around how do you deal with the big obvious thing charging at you? You know, why are you not dealing with it? Why are some people more likely to deal with it than others? And if you're not dealing with it, is there something that you can change about your behavior? Is there a strategy? Is there an outlook that you can use to change how you respond to something? And 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 I think that there there are lots of things that you can do to 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 do a sort of a, a reality check on your own responses to the world around you. Yeah, I think as human beings, there are all kinds of studies that show we're not very good at gauging risk. No, no. Yeah, we think we are. We think we understand, but but uh, we're we're not really. Yeah. And part of it's, you know, how much you see in it for yourself. I mean, if you see that you've got more potential benefit to to whatever risk you're taking, you're actually likely to judge it as less risky than it really is. Right. So because our it's perceptions, weighted. Mm-hmm. it's weighted. Our perceptions are, are going through this sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, fun house echo chamber. And uh, it's, they're not fixed. They're not constant. They, they change constantly. And so by being aware of them, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, Schrodinger's cat, you know, right. by, by being aware of, uh, of a situation, you can actually change the, the outcome. And I think entrepreneurship um, is also part of that, um, too, because you've started a business, I've started businesses. But to me, um, owning your own business is less risky than working for someone else when you might be at any time fired. So it, I think it just depends on how you look at it. And maybe it, that's my, my Greek heritage too, thinking that you have to be, <laughs> <laughs> you want to work for yourself. Well, but it's, it, it's very important in, in the story of the United States. Absolutely. Well, mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I was talking to um, uh, a, a workforce expert today who works on um, sort of, you know, flexible jobs and, and right. economy. And she was saying that the... Uh, you know, the average length of a job these days is, 
she didn't have the exact number, but it was like three to four years, something very short where, you know, it used to be that you expected to be someplace for, you know, five, 10, 15, your whole life years and get a pension. It's not Japan it. anymore here. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But there's, there's another very interesting survey that I'd, uh, I'd read of, of freelancers who in not very many years are going to be the majority of, uh, mm-hmm. of the population in the United States at least. And it asked them about what was riskier or not. And a lot of them felt that it was less risky to be controlling their own fate and the sources of income to have multiple income streams, right? And part of that goes back to some of these um, these uh, you know biases and perceptions that when we feel we have more control of a situation, we're actually likely to perceive it as less risky than it really is. So you look at the flip side of this, you know, this you know gig economy, and people feel that they've. They've got more diversification of income streams, which... Control of their time, control of if their they have time. a family. Mm-hmm. You don't have to deal with, you know, if a boss comes in who doesn't like you because, you know, one of your eyebrows is higher than the other one. Um, you know, there's that. But, you know, on the flip side, all of these, these systemic uh, supports that corporations used to provide and, and what they still often provide, you know, healthcare, healthcare. and mm-hmm. life insurance and, and other things, but even like, you know, the infrastructure, all of those other supports that, that reduce risk, that provide a cushion around you, those are not there. And so that's a big problem for, for entrepreneurs, and particularly solopreneurs and, you know, people who are creatives who don't necessarily have any business experience at all. And now the social the social aspect of it, now there's meetup and there's working places that people can go to and share, um, you know, share what they're doing and technology that allows you to maintain communications in a way you couldn't have 20 years ago. Absolutely. And oh, there, it has overcome some of that. It's, it's mm-hmm. definitely helped with, with some of it, but there's, there's a lot there. And certainly, you know, learning all the things that you can do and having a support system around you. I mean, I, I've got great networks. I use a co-working space where, mm-hmm. you know, it's where I found my, uh, you know, my web designer and the people who host my website and all sorts of other people who've just given me all sorts of wonderful advice and you know, social contact. So that, that environment around you, whether it's, it's the people, the support ne- network, the, the cushion, uh, but also They're substitutes. No. They, they, yeah, mm-hmm. they really, but it's, it's essential for risk. And interestingly, there's a lot of research that shows that the way you see risk depends on how many of those structures you have around there, what the community is around you, how much support you feel you have mm-hmm. for, for what you're doing. And when you feel you've got more support, you're actually going to perceive the same risk as being less, but actually objectively, it is because if something goes wrong, the odds of you being able to deal with it are much higher than if you're out floating on your own. So another uh, great entrepreneurial country is China. And I'm fascinated by the fact that your book has had such an enormous reception in China. In fact, earlier this year, Xi Jinping actually quoted your book and the gray rhino is a concept. So what do you think it is about China and the Chinese people that has made you, has, has resonated so much? 
It's, it's actually that that question is, is so important. It's actually got what got me into researching more about why people think about risk the way okay. they do and why <laughs> they, they respond. So, uh, so, so China has really played a big role in inspiring some of that thinking and, and actually going back to my very early days of, of um, cultural criticism, cross-cultural comparisons. And there's uh, some of the research that I've looked into uh, shows a number of very interesting things about, uh, about Asian cultures in general, but particularly in China. Uh, one of them is what I was just mentioning, that, that when you have a community, a support system around you, uh, when you believe that the government's going to step in, you're actually going to perceive things as less risky mm-hmm. than you would otherwise. And you know that includes the fact that heading off a risk is actually a big risk in and of itself. A lot of people are more afraid of doing the wrong thing to fix a problem than so they do doing nothing. nothing at all. Oh, it's, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But that's, it's very different from one culture to another. Another thing I found that fascinates me is that um, in Asia, people are much more likely to expect things to change in the future. Whereas Westerners are more likely to expect things to stay the Is same. Is that right? Hmm. Very, very interesting. You, you draw a graph with a line and the Westerners will continue the line up in the same direction. And uh, people from Asia are much more likely to show the, the line changing direction. It's aspirational. Maybe in the U.S., the, the, um, uh, I think most people have a higher degree of, of, uh, of I think, of Wishful thinking? Not wishful thinking, <laughs> but living standards. So their living standards are higher. So if you're living standard, there's more, there's more distance to go. And you can see how better li- living standards might exist because of media and everything that we have now. You can, although if you look at it uh, objectively, um, you know, in countries where you're starting from a lower base, right. and particularly in, in you know, the, the past couple of decades, we've seen in developing countries huge increases in standards of living and it's actually easier to go up from a lower base exactly than in the in the developed economies where a lot of things are plateauing just because it's how much more stuff can we have how much more stuff can we have Mm -hmm. and you know when you're starting from it it, it just just the the mathematics of you know of, of a lower number is much easier to increase than the higher number Right. So, so that's part of it. And the uh, rate of change is simply higher in a place like China. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but another, another piece of research has shown that uh, people in Asia and especially China, and a lot of this research, you'll, you'll see a trend for Asia and then China is just like even more so than right. the rest of the, the region, uh, that people are more comfortable with change. I think it's partly because they expect it more, mm-hmm. but they've lived it. They've lived it, and they're better able to to manage change and and uncertainty mm-hmm. than uh, than a lot of Western countries. We've we've gotten too fat and happy, is what you're saying. We have, <laughs> and the other part, you know, I was I was talking about control a little while ago too, and and you look at the government uh, the government systems. And uh, in China, the government's got the ability to do a lot more things than our sort of dysfunctional democracies that, you know, trying to get a bill through Congress, particularly these days, is really hard where the Chinese government can make decisions. That's and not a problem. Happen. <laughs> so, yeah. So this just the fact that, that, you know, you have the confidence 
that you can make a change uh, makes it easier to say to, to recognize what's in front of you when you've got the power to do something about it. And but yeah. also when you know when people expect you to do something about it. Right. Well, Congress did just pass though the Hong Kong Human Rights Act, amazingly unanimously. Um, and that's certainly going to play into U.S.-China trade relationships. The China, China's already reacted to that. How do you see that? How, what's your analysis of the situation in Hong Kong and between China and Hong Kong? And how do you see, it just seems like it was a train wreck for a long time coming, and yet nobody did anything to stop it. Is this an example of a gray rhino event, do you but think? You know, it's, I get this question all the time about Hong Kong. Like, is it a black swan or a gray rhino? Okay. Like, always. <laughs> and, and I actually, the question drives me nuts because I'm like, it's, it's, in hindsight, it's, it's not really useful question. I mean, to me, the right. difference is, you know, the gray rhino concept is particularly useful when you're looking, you know, through the windshield at the thing right, right. in front of you. Um, it's here. <laughs> it's here. And I think that, you know, the Hong Kong situation has been one where there have been a lot, uh, you know, a lot of questions and tensions for a long time. And it's, it's always hard to know exactly how something is going to surface. And uh, so, you know, in this case, I think it, w- it was very unpredictable to to know exactly how a situation Nobody was going could to have no, known. No, no. You, you, you're not going to know the specifics. It's just the, the right. nature of things. And uh, so I think that the fact that there, you know, there have been just some underlying tensions that uh, some of them, it's, it's hard to imagine how they, how they can and they will be addressed. It's the kind of situation uh, I often describe as a Gordian knot. Yes. When it's, it's not always clear what to do uh, or what not to do. So if Hong Kong's definitely, I don't think a black swan or it's not a great, what are the situations that you see now? What do you worry about in terms of the world? What are the, the, the uh, issues that you think could, are gray rhinos we're not recognizing right now? Sure. Well, I think a lot of these are the the, the gray, gray rhinos that you know we do recognize and we're still right. not doing anything about. Um, once a year, I go through all of the predictions lists. They, a couple of 2020 lists have already come out. Uh, Deutsche Bank just uh, had one and a couple, couple more. But between November and usually early February, mm-hmm. uh, they're about, I think I did about four dozen of them last year, all these top risks lists. And I go through and do a meta-analysis. You know, what are the things that are mentioned most frequently? What are the things that are highest on the list? It's kind of as much art as science because sometimes, you know, people will mention the same things in different ways. And and sometimes some of the lists are just looking at political and some of them are right. looking at that. You know, so, so apples to oranges, right? Exactly. So there's a, there's a fair amount of, of you know, squishiness in that. Mm-hmm. But I do this every year so that in the future, nobody's going to come back and say, oh, nobody ever saw it coming. You know, like in 2008. People did. People nobody did ever then. saw the instabilities in the housing market. I mean, my Manhattan apartment almost doubled in value in four years. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was pretty easy to see that something was not right. But you wanted there. to believe the other narrative. Well, I sold yeah. it. Yeah. I sold Good. it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> it was the first apartment. It was time. Um, but um, so anyway, so this year, uh, you know, they're almost over uh, at this point. Uh, but the ones that really 
resonated mm -hmm. uh, for me and the things that I agreed with the most uh, are all sort of related. Uh, mm. uh, inequality, mm -hmm. uh, huge, I think. And that's feeding into the reason that the U.S. economy isn't growing faster. You know, you're seeing financial and asset inequality continuing to increase and it's not being addressed. Uh, and and that's, that's going to, it's going to be a, a huge ceiling on where the economy can grow until, until that's addressed. So that's one. Uh, the second one is very closely related, monetary policy. Mm. You've seen this huge, huge, huge liquidity bubble growing and growing and growing for the last 10 years. And uh, you've seen asset inflation, which is in turn adding to the inequality problem. Right. Uh, you're seeing misallocated resources. You're seeing huge debt bubbles. You're, you're not seeing some of the creative destruction that you would see otherwise. Uh, you're, seeing, uh, you're seeing resources put in the wrong place uh, because of all these mispricings of assets. And the third big one has to do with climate change. And also, you know, central bankers around the world have been sounding warnings this year saying that climate change might trigger the next financial crisis if, if there's an insurance event that's so big that insurers can't handle, handle it. Handle it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, that's part of it. And, you know, and that also is tied to inequality because the people who are, who are hurt most by climate change are the people who've contributed least to it and can least afford to protect themselves. And so those are very closely interrelated. And actually, one of the, the analytical tools that I use in looking at gray rhinos is how closely are they related right. and what directions are those related. There's many cases where you can't solve one without solving something else. And I think this is the, you know, the, big, the big trio. And uh, the way they come together also, um, I, I have to say this because I love it so much, the zoologically correct term for a group of gray rhinos is a crash. Right. It, I mean, you could not come up with a more appropriate That's word. so funny. <laughs> but those, those three things are the ones that, that really struck me the most at the beginning of the year. And they're still, uh, you know, they're still, they're still there. They, they tie into some of the, the, the political, the geopolitical and the U.S. political tensions that we're having. And uh, I still worry a lot. And uh, it would be very interesting to see. Actually, Deutsche Bank got a lot of press for the fact that it said that income inequality was one of its, its biggest concerns for 2020. So this is something that a lot of other people are talking about and a lot of people are recognizing. You know, you're seeing in the, in, the, in the political debates in the United States, there's some people are talking about these things and what to do with them and how to deal with them. And it's, it's still an open question whether we're going to deal with these things in time to, to keep them from trampling us. I think one thing I worry about is global health. And um, because I think that could be the WHO is a very tiny organization to deal with these problems. And now because of transportation, viruses and so forth can be, uh, can travel literally around the world in 24 hours. But the Japanese have an interesting solution to that. They created an insurance fund that is now also, I think they're European participants in it and reinsurers. So that if there is some kind of huge healthcare event anywhere in the world, that the money is already in a fund that can be immediately deployed to help with that. And that it would be something that everybody contributes to spreading risk. 
So insurance is the, um, a way maybe to deal with some of these issues. But in, income inequality, what do you do about that? Oh, we could, we could talk for a whole hour. We could, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I think that there are. You, there, I, I don't know if you saw this uh, report that came out recently that that the you know the top one percent are paying is you know smaller percent of their income as taxes right. than the rest of the. And thing. Amazon paid zero and it's, eleven billion and doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the other part of the taxes is that you know you see these these huge stock market bubbles and with, you know capital gains taxes, particularly the long term ones. You know, you're paying less taxes on that than you are. Uh, you know, corporate taxes, even after the corporate taxes have been lowered. And so we're actually subsidizing these bubbles, which makes no sense at all. But you know, going back to your point about the, the Japanese and the insurance fund, there are lots and lots and lots of possibilities, applications of uh, insurance solutions for, for a lot of these. You know, healthcare, uh, you know, another, another situation is, uh, you know, medical debt in the United States. So many families going under because of a medical event and medical debts, you know, what about a you know a fund to you know cap these sort of catastrophic losses and share the risk, share the risk of everybody sharing mm-hmm. them. And, and, and actually sharing the risk is is really a lot of why civilizations were created. That's right. You know, you support a government that protects you from all of these risks, and I think that one of the explanations for the social unrest that we're seeing today is that governments governments have not been playing that crucial role of protecting their citizens from from risk. You look at at, at, at viruses and potential pandemics and things like that. What is the one thing that can help those from from spreading? It's it's easily accessible healthcare. It's you know it's regular checkups. It's Having you know you know stockpiles of, of vaccines. In some places, it's simply having toilets. Ha- simply having yeah. toilets. Right. Yeah. You you know you look at that in water even, sanitation. And in countries like the United States, there's there's no excuse for not having better access to healthcare than we have. And it's not just about the people who are getting their operation or their their shots or their pills or whatever. That's something that affects everybody's health. Right. Because yeah. it's so easily transmissible. Well, we have a you you mentioned in your book the Chicago fire and all the things that we learned and so forth, but we have another kind of financial fire now in Chicago that is looming and everybody knows that it's going to end in tears, yet we're not doing much about it and it seems that the pensions and so forth will just be paid until they can't be rather than having some kind of a preventative action. Um Michelle, you could live anywhere in the world that you wanted to and you have lived all over. Um, but now you consider yourself a Midwesterner and a Chicagoan. So tell me about how you decided to be here. We're very happy to have you. <laughs> I'm very, you know, it's funny when I, when I, you know, when I finished college and I was like, you know, I'm going to get the hell out of Dodge. You know, right, when, when right. you're that age, that's, that's what you go and do. And, and, um, but I'm, I've got very deep Midwestern roots. I was born in Kansas city. Uh, my family from the Milwaukee, Chicago areas and my great grandparents, uh, came here from what was then the the Austro-Hungarian Empire, from uh, mm-hmm. what's now you know uh, um, from Bohemia in, in the Czech Republic and from uh, what's now Poland, and uh, they met working in the downtown hotels. Um, in fact, every time I, I go by the Congress Hotel, I think that's 
that's my history. You wouldn't be here without the Congress my, Hotel. <laughs> my great-grandfather was a chef. And in fact, actually talking about viruses and, and the pandemics, uh, he actually died in the 1918 flu epidemic. Oh. So he, they had moved up to Milwaukee and he, uh, he started mm-hmm. his, his restaurant, his own restaurant there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been to Chicago just about every year of my life. And I would come here, uh, you know, for business. I'd come visit the family in Milwaukee, and I had some business to do downtown. And every time I come to Chicago, I just think, this has got all the good stuff of New York, but wow, people are nice, and there's light, and the streets don't smell like pissing garbage. Right. And we have alleys. <laughs> alleys people in Chicago are so proud of alleys, and, and rightly so. And, it, and that goes back to the fire, actually. It's like we have right. alleys because of the... The, the fire, but it was funny. I moved back here about five years ago and hadn't realized just how Midwestern I was. I see. One of my uh, coworkers asked where I'd lived and I'm, I'm in a third floor walk up with very high ceilings, which the mover said it's really a fourth floor walk up. Um, but so I told her about, about that and uh, my coworker says, oh, you have your own built-in gym. And I thought, oh, that is so Midwestern. Absolutely. It's so Midwestern. And I loved it. So I'm actually very happy to be back to my roots. And, you know, I live not far from the Aragon Ballroom and uh, do a lot of the family genealogy. And was looking through some old family pictures after I moved back here. And there's a picture of my grandparents in front of the Aragon Ballroom in the 30s. Oh, that's fantastic. I had no idea. It's a, you know, it's a 10 minute walk from my apartment. So, but, but, you know, Chicago also, it's, I mean, it's got such amazing history and I often really, you know, resent this sort of coastal discussion that it all happens, you know, on the East coast or the West coast. And there's so much, so many rich things going on here. So much, you know, rich conversation, so much innovation, you know, amazing people. And, uh, I feel like I'm a, I'm a very important part of the, the conversation right. here. And I feel like what I have to give mm-hmm. is, uh, is going to have much more impact here. And, uh, you know, the quality of life, that's, that's also really good. I and walk, the restaurants and a lot of other things. We I, can go on and on. I walk on the lake every morning <laughs> with my dog. You know, I have celiac disease. So going out to eat is a risk management ex- exercise for me. And I found like it's so much easier to eat in Chicago without getting glutened than in New York because they're Midwesterners. They actually care if you get sick from their food they're, or not. And they're on it. They'll tell you. So I'm, yeah. I'm very happy. I'm here, for, I'm, I'm here for good. I'm very, very happy to be back in the Midwest. That's wonderful. And so you're going to be writing your next book here. You are writing. Your, can you tell us anything about it? Well, I'm uh, knock on wood. Uh, knock, knock, knock. <laughs> um, I should have the very rough draft uh, by the middle of December. And then we'll be going through more and more and more, you know, polishing. Um, but it's really about our risk attitudes, mm-hmm. uh, how we come to view risk the way we do, whether we pay attention or not, how risky we judge something to be, how much risk we're willing to take on, what's our risk appetite, and then what are we willing to do about that? And once you know that, how do you apply it to your relationships, to the organization? Mm-hmm. where you work. Uh, there are actually also policy uh, applications for it. You know, how do you create an ecosystem where people have, have healthy attitudes, healthy support structures, uh, things that encourage them to take the good risks and to be more cautious about the bad risks? 
And so... Uh, to make better decisions. To make better really decisions. really reason to understand yourself better. It is. And it's mm-hmm. really, it really says these, these risk fingerprints that we have. When you look at those, you understand everything about yourself, about your organization, about the people around you, and also about the conflicts that come up when the people around you don't think the same way about risks. And it gives you a new lens to solve some of those problems. And it also also helps you to sort of renew your sense of purpose. You know, what are you willing to take a risk for? What's non-negotiable? Making th- your decision-making pro- uh, process more conscious is what you're really saying. Absolutely. And it, mm-hmm. it goes down to your values and your beliefs and your purpose. And it's it's an amazing lens. It's sort of, you know, the risk theory of everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michelle, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. It's not a risky thing at all to read Michelle's book, The Gray Rhino. I think it'll be, I'm 100% sure that our listeners will love it. And you have a website? At the thegrayrhino.com. Okay. A with an, if, 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 the gray with an A. <laughs> Gray with an A. <laughs> Gray with an A. And Wooker.com too, right? Wooker.com. That's mm-hmm. my author site. It actually goes into some of my uh, my earlier books, which go into more about uh, immigration, Dominican Republic, and Haiti. So that's W-C-K-E-R.com. Sort of the, .com, exactly. And the, the GrayRhino.com goes into a lot more about the you know risk and Gray Rhino theory. And uh, I have a lot of really great guest columns from people who are doing really good work on risk as well. So it's it's almost like a like a magazine. And I follow you on Twitter. Love and Twitter. Your Twitter handle is at Wooker, W U C K E R. Fantastic. And LinkedIn. So if you're interested in hearing more about Michelle's thoughts, and I'm sure you will, um, we'll give you a number of places that you can do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was not a risk to come and have a conversation with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Michelle. 